You know, second week of Advent, I hear it's, it's about peace. It's about peace of God. Um, now, if you could, close your eyes and think about the time in your life, whenever that was, that you had the most profound sense of peace and comfort and rest. Now, I had this picture of God holding each and every one of us, like a father would lie with his son or daughter, and that peace which has come over that child. Now, my, what came to my mind is when I was, I forget how old, maybe four or five or so years old, I was putting on my boots and my hand went on the door frame, the inside hinge door, hinge side of the door, and my fingers were there. And my brother, in his haste, went outside and slammed the door, which slammed right on my fingers. I remember three or four fingers, skin came off, and it was a lot of pain. And I remember lying down with my father and him just holding me as I cried. But in the pain, there was such tremendous amount of peace, knowing that I was comforted, knowing that I was cared for. So Lord, this morning I ask that you would just come and you would hold us and you would be with us and you would bring us peace and whatever is going on, Whatever tensions, whatever disruptions, whatever is in the front of our mind that we're struggling with, I ask that you would remove that and you would just be with us and bring us peace. Amen. So one of our traditions in our house for Christmas that we're about to do today, actually, is we have some carved figurines of the nativity. So we have Joseph and Mary and, and the shepherds and sheep and oxen and donkeys and angels. And what we do is we will put them up close to the Christmas tree or over the fireplace mantle. And each individual of the family will pick one character. And we'll tell a story about that character. And then we'll go through the entire family and we'll start back over the first person. And, and we do this and we, we tell the story of how we think maybe how that character experienced Christmas. How that character experienced and how the impact of Jesus' birth was on that person. Now the stories we share obviously come from ourselves and they come from a place of our experiences, right? It's how we see things and how we understand the world around us. So, for example, we would share, somebody would pick up a shepherd and we'd share, you know, what was the conversation between the shepherds after the angels appeared to them and said, go to Bethlehem? And, and you know, the confusion that would be among them. Or it might even be, you know, we might pick up the lamb and the lamb was in the animal shelter well, he was supposed to be a sacrifice that day for, for, let's say, for a sacrifice for atonement. But it turns out that he was actually there to see the Lamb of God being born. So we'd share these stories with one another, and it's, I've really, really enjoyed it. So when Ken talked about sharing about a character in the Bible, I figured, well, I like to pick things that are really unique. I'm going to go with, like, Herod, or I'm going to go with a dove or something and talk about the character of that person. But I couldn't help but get my mind off Joseph. Um... Joseph is honestly my favorite character of the entire nativity um, for two reasons. He speaks to me, his character speaks very loud and clearly to me as a husband and as a father. His story speaks to me about mercy and trust. And this is what I want to share today. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open it up or your cell phones or um, however you want to. Matthew chapter 1 is where, where I'm going to kind of share from. Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 to 25. This is what it reads. 
This is, of course, with, with Joseph and Mary. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, he was found to be pregnant through, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Joseph woke up, he did what the angel Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now there are a lot of stories in the Bible that cover a lot of information in a very couple of verses, and it doesn't expand a lot on what that individual necessarily was going through. You know, Genesis tells a lot of stories that may cover thousands of years in just a, in, in just a chapter. So it leaves some room for artistic license of what was happening to the individuals in those stories. You know, how someone was feeling, the emotions that were involved in the decisions that were being made, motives, drivers, why people did what they did, what was, what was the reason for that. Us humans are driven by emotions and by feelings. They impact what we do, what we say, how we do it, when we do it. These are very real things, and, and most of the time, these emotions and, and what drives us is what's happening around us, in the environment around us. So the Bible does a really good job explaining biblical history of what was happening, but there was external factors on this that was happening outside. Very, very real political things that were happening during this time that would be impacting Joseph and this family. And I just want to kind of set the picture here a little bit in what was happening. So about 60 years before Jesus' birth, Jerusalem was being run by, by the Jewish people. They were the rulers, they were the governors. There was tension between two opposing forces. Jerusalem was set between Egypt and Syria, well, and still is, and this was a significant trading pathway for Rome. And it was, Rome very much depended on this area to continue movement of troops, of people, of merchandise, and of money. So when this tension came up, they, they sent a general, his name was General Pompey, into Jerusalem to take care of things. When he intervened this dispute, this was the end of the kingdom of Jerusalem. He overthrew the Hasmonean kingdom, which spelled the end for Jewish independence, and incorporated Judea as a client kingdom of the Roman Republic. He besieged the city, uh, overthrowing the forces. He entered the temple. He also went into the most holy of holy places with his, you know, with all of his gear and everything. So this is a significant event and a significant trajectory change for the Jewish people. Their independence is God. A Roman soldier has gone into the Holy of Holies. And this happened about 60 years before Jesus' birth. After that, there was significant war, there was attacks, there was flights of people, there was a change of, of demographic. You had Romans sending Roman people into the area. You had the Jewish people tr making little cities for themselves throughout. It, it was a very tense time. 
Herod was allowed to remain king by Rome in the kingdom of Judea and had a free hand governing as long as there was stability and loyalty to Rome. So as long as there was money flowing and everything was calm, he could remain king. Now we know that Herod and his sons were considered as alien oppressors. They were not seen as one of the people. There were significant divisions between him and the, the, the cities and the lands, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There was multiple layers of government that were against each other. And as I said, Judea was located between Egypt and Syria, which made a major trade route, which meant lots of taxes and lots of customs with money or produce flowing. With the heavy taxation, Herod built up many projects, many buildings, many towns, many cities. He did it too so he could placate the, the Jewish population as well as the Roman population and he even built, built out the, the temple in the courtyard significantly to appease those um, individuals. So with the heavy taxation and, and the many, many um, building projects, the king's coffers were filled many times and they were depleted many times on lavish spending. So heavy taxes, lots of spending, lots of strife, people were looking forward to the Messiah. And they were looking to get out of bondage and oppression and be free again. Now it's suggested that Herod had secret police to monitor the feelings being reported from the people, to get a temperature of where the people were at so he could stop any kind of outrising, any kind of strife, any kind of disagreement with Rome or himself. So he had people strategically placed to report what the rumors are around. Okay? He prohibited protests and opponents were removed by force. It said he had 2,000 soldiers to act as his personal bodyguard wherever he went. Now all of these events the removal of the kingdom of Judea, the removal of independence, Roman occupation, all of these things happen in Joseph's dad's time. So all of these pressures, Joseph would have been, he would have been raised with, he would have heard his dad talking about the, the removal of, of Jerusalem's state and all of these tensions. He would have been very aware of um, Herod's paranoia, <laughs> and rightfully so. He... Um, Herod, we know, had um, gotten some of his family uh, assassinated because he thought he was, they were trying to take over the kingdom. Um, so this is kind of the area that we're in. So out of that environment, enter Joseph, a very young, poor carpenter in Nazareth. One who wanted to be faithful to the law. He wanted to be faithful to the laws of circumcision, Sabbath, Diet, festivals, feasts, communities, cleanliness, marriage, the customs that, that, that he was growing with and he knew. So we have a young, young carpenter who has paid his dowry to a family, a dowry to the family and a dowry to a young Mary, and he enters into a marriage contract with Mary. Now in this room, I love the fact that there are so many cultures and ethnicities present. You know, we have Nigerian, Ecuadorian, European, Asian, just people from all over the globe with different ethnicities, backgrounds, and cultures. So many ways to express the union of two people in marriage. Here at Gateway East, we've had rededications and dedications to Jesus. We've had um, baby dedications. We've had baptisms. We haven't had a wedding yet. No pressure. 
<laughs> but I'm looking for I'm looking forward to it. Um, so each and every one, as far as I know, each one, each one of your customs, and please tell me if I'm wrong, will focus on the sanctity of that union. It'll focus on the trust and the codependence on each other, the partnership, the dedication to each other, the commitment to each other. That is the sole purpose of marriage. Now, Heather and I, we don't, we don't have a strong ethnic background. We're not attached to any strong ethnicity. We're a mixed match of, of uh, European and, and um, uh, Eastern European cultures and backgrounds from German to Flemish, Norwegian, Polish, Ukrainian, a little bit of everything. One of the customs we did follow in our wedding is that I asked her mom's blessing in marriage. I remember, I think it was her 60th birthday, and I said, I love your daughter. Can I have your blessing to marry her? Without hesitation, she said yes. In fact, her response was much quicker than Heather's response when I asked her to marry me. Oh, I remember that. So we got engaged in October, I think. Uh, but I do know we got married in June. Engaged in February, not married in February. That I remember, come on. <laughs> so we, we did not, we had, I think it was about nine months courtship. Okay, we, we both, we were a little bit older. We both knew what we wanted. We didn't want to mess around. We were dating for a purpose. I was going to nursing school and I was between my second and third year and we decided, you know, we either marry now or we have to wait till I graduate. And honestly, I couldn't and I didn't want to wait. So we married with no plan. No money. We just wanted to be together. And that was it. So the Jewish tradition, they had two different ceremonies for their weddings. The first one was the betrothal. This was the one where, you know, Joseph would have given a dowry to Mary's parents and possibly given a dowry to Mary as well. And I know in our society that sounds kind of weird and it's a paying contract, but it was actually to protect Mary. So that when they got married, if Joseph happened to have died, Mary would have had the dowry to fall back on. She would have had that as money to help survive. If they had gotten divorced, she would have had that dowry that was paid to her family and to herself for some sort of survival. So this was ingrained. This is, this is well, that's a whole other story. But anyway, so the, the betrothal was, it usually lasted about a year. And essentially, at the betrothal, the couple were married. This was done as a ceremony between colleagues, between family and friends, the, the religious leaders. There was a dinner. It, everybody knew that Mary and Joseph were married. Now Joseph has to go and he has to build a house. He has to make a home for her. And then at that time, Mary's father would have taken her to Joseph and given her over, saying, she is now your wife. It consummate the marriage and they start the family. So these are two parts. At this time, when Mary was found to be pregnant, this was after the first part, after the betrothal, but before the wedding. She was dedicated to him and him to her, and she was found to be pregnant. Now, Heather and I had a short engagement for many reasons. <laughs> Our, um, 
as I said earlier, we, we had made an early decision that there would be no significant physical contact between us until we were married. Because we had both been down that path before, and we wanted to make sure that when we got that when we were married, we were dedicated to each other for the right reasons. So our first kiss was our wedding kiss on our wedding day. <laughs> I remember somebody, somebody that was there yelled up, come up for air. <laughs> it, um, it was a really good first kiss. Now, when we were dating, my brother had been doing education overseas. So he was in Norway and Sweden and, and entrenched in a very liberal culture. And when he came back to Manitoba, we had a picnic at the park, and, and he was so excited to meet his brother's girlfriend. And he went right up to her, and he hugged her, and gave her a big kiss on the cheek and on the other cheek, and everybody stopped dead and looked at him. And he's like, what's going on? And somebody had said, well, Kurt, Eric, Kurt hasn't even kissed her yet. And he looks at me, he says, well, that's his problem. You snooze, you lose. <laughs> I know where he's coming from, right? And it was fine. But Mary was pregnant. Yeah. It was not a kiss. It was not... I think about that, and I can't imagine how hard that would have been. You know, for, for Joseph to really go through... Somebody who wants to obey the law. And of course, we know at the law at the time that if in adultery, the individual was stoned. Now at this time, whether that would have happened or not, we don't know. All, all those types of punishments had to be authorized by the Roman governor, and we don't know if that would have happened, but it doesn't change where Joseph was. All we know is we have this young guy who's a carpenter who's trying to carve out a life, trying to carve out his family. As Joseph knows nothing about what was told to Mary yet. All he knows is he's working hard to build a family, and now his wife is pregnant and not from him. I think, what would I have done? <laughs> I don't know. Now, the next three things, it may not matter what, what format um, these next three points happened in, what, what chronological order. Um, and we also don't know how, how Joseph found out. It just says that Joseph, was found, or Mary, was found to be pregnant. And then we hear that Mary hurriedly went to Judea. So there's three things that happen, and this is where the artistical license or the interpretation comes into play. We don't know the timeline for sure, but we know three things happened after that. We know that Mary got up and leaves and hurried to Judea. We know that the angel appears to Joseph in a dream, and we know that Joseph had to leave for Bethlehem. We don't know exactly what order that happened in. It's not entirely clear. I have my own thoughts that may come out as a bias and what the order may have happened. But it doesn't really matter what order it happened in. We do know that Joseph had a decision to make. Now, it could have been that, that jo Mary's father found out that she was pregnant and did not want to tell Joseph right away because he was scared for Mary's life because who knows what Joseph's going to do. So Joseph says, Mary, you got to go to your cousin Elizabeth's house, Elizabeth and Zechariah in, uh, in, in Judea. And then I will tell Joseph. And he told Joseph. And Joseph now has to think about what am I going to do. And then he has to go to Bethlehem to be counted for the census. And on the way from Bethlehem, I like to think that maybe the angel appeared to him in the same area that maybe um, uh, Jacob wrestled with an angel. Um, 
Zechariah and Elizabeth lived about 144 kilometers south of Nazareth, where Mary and Joseph were. Bethlehem was an additional 15 kilometers south of that. It's possible that the angel appeared to Joseph on his way to Bethlehem, and Joseph decided, I have to pick up my wife. Went to Zechariah and Elizabeth's home to pick Mary up, and then proceeded to Bethlehem. We don't know. It could be. But he had a decision to make, and he had really only three decisions to make with this scenario. He could divorce, divorce her before the court, which would mean before the court, before the priest, and before the people, and that would devastate her. That would be her shame that she would live with. There would be no future for her and that child and that culture. The second piece would he could divorce her quietly, which still required witnesses, but it would be more likely seen as his shame. Because one of the only scenarios that that would happen in where he would divorce her quietly is that if he took her before he was supposed to, got her pregnant and wanted nothing to do with her thereafter. It would be his shame that this would happen. Or he does nothing and just leaves it. He could remarry, but she could not. She would not be doing anything without that certificate of divorce that had to be signed and signed with witnesses. It's called a get. So, as I said, Joseph doesn't know the whole story yet. A deal was made with her family, and he was working on the house. She's pregnant, and she left for Judea. Oh, I jumped real far ahead here. So he has the vision. The angel, the angel says, take him as your wife. Before that, of course, he, he decides to divorce her quietly. He decided to, to take the risk of shaming himself in his community, which he felt was better than her. So the angel told him, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. And he decided to take her as his wife and to be married, and he would become Jesus' father. That's a whole nother talk on the significance of Joseph accepting Jesus as his own and the correlation of how God accepts us and adopts us into his family and says, you are not, you are my child. We'll leave that for Ken to talk about another time. But we see in this story, Joseph very clearly chose mercy over judgment. You see, he had every right to divorce publicly, to have her shamed. That was the law. But he just chose to be kind and gentle and have mercy. James 2, verse 13, is a very short verse, but such significant impact. It says, mercy triumphs over judgment. We have all received mercy from our Father. Luke says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Forgive because you have been forgiven. We don't have a room to stand on for any judgment of anybody. But how can this be translated into your life? How can this be translated into my life? I have two, possibly three stories to kind of share. Now, the choice for mercy is more impactful and more godly than judgment. My son, when his mom was three months pregnant, we broke up. And um, he lived with me for two weeks and her with two weeks until he was about five years old. And I guess he was about three. 
I was dropping him off at her place. Now, he would typically cry for two or three days after I dropped him off because he wanted to be with Daddy. So this is a very vulnerable spot for a three- or four-year-old. Vulnerable enough when parents are separated and divorced, but two weeks one place, two weeks the other place. It can be very traumatic for a young child, so it's a very vulnerable moment. As with anybody who's emotional, it's a vulnerable moment, and how they're responded to can impact the significance of your relationship from that point for the rest of their lives. So I'm, giving, I'm bending down, and I'm giving him a hug, and say, I'll be back. And I look at my truck, my brand new truck, the used truck, the brand new to me, and all along the quarter panel of the back of the truck, I see a little swirl. I rub off the dust, and it's still there. All the way down in this pattern or swirl, straight line, swirls, and back again, I see these scratches. And I look down at Justin, and I said, what happened? And his big doe eyes look up at me, and he said, Daddy, I thought your truck was tough. So I have a, a choice to make. I can either demand justice and discipline, which would have been warranted. You know, he took a rock to my truck and scratched the, <laughs> scratched the whole back end of it. Or I can respond in mercy. So I simply said to him, I said, Justin, my truck is tough on the inside, not the outside. Or I could have punished him. Now, no matter what I did, he would have never done it again. But depending what I did would have set the trajectory of a relationship as father and son for the rest of our relationship. So this was a moment I showed mercy. I did not want to take away that moment of vulnerability for my child. Mercy triumphs over judgment. My job as a manager requires me to have a lot of human resource and a lot of tensions and difficult conversations, which I despise. I do not like confrontation at all. So when we hire a staff member, let's say in a point five, point five, point five means you work half time, five days out of every 14 days. There is an expectation that that individual is at work for at least 95% of their shifts, meaning if they're sick for 20% of their shifts, it becomes a significant challenge for staffing, for morale on the unit, these are nurses, right? So a particular nurse was sick for, for six months, nine months, consistently, 20-25% vacancy, sick time. And I have to deal with that. I can either, and there's a program that we use, it's called ASAP, and it's, it's about um, accountability and making sure people at work when they're supposed to be at work. So for the sake of time, I'll cut the story short. But I had a meeting with this individual, and I said, what's going on? I could have very easily put her on this program and, and demanded that they be there and monitor and track it. And if, she wasn't, if they weren't there that much, then it, it ends in, 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 in termination. But I said, what's going on? Like, what, what's, why, are you okay? And she said, well, I'm okay. But I says, there's not here 25% of the time. And it turns out that that particular rotation of seven nights in a row was difficult for their being a single parent, a young child at home, that high anxiety, mental health challenges. And it turns out that almost every stretch, they had to take two nights off ill because their child was sick, they were sick, just not able to do the nights. 
I said, oh, okay, so why don't we, I have an empty vacancy here, why don't we change your rotation, make you work two days, have three off, work three, have two off, that way you get to be home more consistently, you don't have to be away for seven days, and we'll make it work for both of us. Well, it turns out, immediately thereafter, their absenteeism rate went down to 4%. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I'd like to highlight two pieces here. There's there's a proverb that says, silver hair is a sign of a righteous life. Now, I knew lots of people growing up that had silver hair that mm, (laughs) was not quite a righteous life. But you look at the law of the time in the particular culture. If you had a rebellious son, you were to bring him to the gates of the city and stone him to death. Thank you for not doing that, mom and dad. That was, (laughs) you know, if you're found in adultery, you go to the front of the city and be stoned to death. You'd be stoned to death, you'd be stoned to death. People didn't live long enough to get gray hair if they did anything wrong. But we see Jesus is being brought a young lady who was caught in adultery. And the law had every purpose to stone them. And what did Jesus say? Jesus did not say, this is the rules. This is what you must and must not do. He said, okay, anybody who doesn't have sin, throw the first stone. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Even Mary, she was sent to Zechariah and Elizabeth's home. All intents and purposes, Mary can be considered an adulteress. Zechariah was a priest who had just spent time in the Holy of Holies. Somebody who does not follow the rules in that environment does not get to be priest and go into the Holy of Holies. So when this young lady shows up that was pregnant out of wedlock, what does Zechariah do? He opens his arms and he says, welcome to my home. Well, maybe he wouldn't have said that because at that time he was mute, but that's a whole different story. Um, But they welcomed her. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the second thing that we see is here we are in Bethlehem, maybe fully married, maybe not yet, or have the marriage ceremony, baby on the way, about to give birth in an animal shelter, which was most likely a family, a family building, seeing as he would have had family in Bethlehem because that's where he grew up, that's where he was born, that's where his family's from. Now, what is the impact on a husband and a father in this situation? In a a city that's not his, giving birth in an animal shelter, no money, and a baby on the way. Those of you who are parents might have a little bit of an understanding of the stress that would have been involved in this and the unknown. When JL was born, we, I was quite actually insensitive to the whole idea of um, nesting and, and mothers wanting to have a home for their baby. And we brought, we brought her home from the hospital. And we were in the middle of renovations on our house on Manitoba Avenue. And I brought her in and I said, sweetie, this is our unfinished entranceway. We go into the living room. This is our unfinished living room because our bedroom is in the living room because our ceiling has fallen in in our, in our bedroom. And this is the unfinished kitchen. <laughs> it, I wasn't able to su- supply a finished house when we brought the baby home, but this is, this is Joseph and Mary in, in an animal shelter giving birth. So here we are. What happens next? So we have Mary and Joseph. They're giving birth in, 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 in an animal shelter, possibly the lower room of a house with the animals all the way around. What happens next? Does anybody know in the story? 
This is where I need response. What happened? What, what's part of the nativity story after they give birth? The three wise men. They were also other visitors. Also came the shepherds. Okay, the shepherds. Now I want to remind everybody about the political temperature of the time. Okay, so you have Herod who has set people in the community to rat people out about any idea of dissension, any idea of taking over Herod's throne, any idea of being unloyal to Rome and Rome only. This was a very prevalent thought and feeling in the culture of the time. Herod is paranoid. He's looking for dissent. He's shutting down objections and oppression to his rule. He's executing those who appear to be a threat to his rule. All Joseph knows is he had just had a very rough go of things. He found that his wife was, was pregnant with not his. Now, he's accepted Jesus and will accept Jesus as his own. But that doesn't mean he's not human and still having thoughts. Am I doing the right thing? Is this child really going to be mine? These would be normal thoughts. So his wife is pregnant. They just give birth. He was visited by an angel. The baby's about to be born. That's a lot to face. But now the shepherds show up. And what do they do? In Luke chapter 2, it says, When they had seen him, when the shepherds had seen the baby Jesus, they spread the word concerning what had been told about him to this child, about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at the shepherds, what the shepherds said to him. What were the shepherds told by the angels? Chapter 2, verse 11 tells us, The angels told the shepherds, Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. The shepherds go out and tell everybody they can see, The Savior has been born. The one who will save us from oppression. The one who will free us. The Messiah is born. And he's, they're telling everybody about this. The exact thing that Herod is looking to shut down. Now, I have never experienced a situation, and I've been in some pretty dangerous situations, but I've never experienced something that what has been said around me about me and my family can endanger me and endanger my family. Now, Joseph would have known with that kind of word being spread around, not necessarily the safest thing for him and his family. Well, what happens next after that? Could have been the wise men, but on day eight in that culture was the dedication of babies, dedication of the firstborn at the temple. So Joseph, he's ready. He is proud to take his family to the temple to dedicate his baby and call him and name him Jesus, which was the naming ceremony as well. So he gets up, he grabs his two pigeons or doves because he was too poor to, fo- to, to afford a lamb, but he is feeling proud. So he heads to the temple, and next thing you know, a priest comes over and lifts the baby up. Luke chapter 2 tells us what Simeon the priest said. And he announced it to everybody in earshot. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. You have shown the glory of your people Israel to all nations. Okay. Anna comes over. I would think of her as Grandma Anna. 
She was an elderly lady who had been a widow for many years and who spent all of her time in the temple, all of her time in the courts. And I'm fairly certain everybody who visited that temple would have known who Anna was. I'm sure she talked with many. She encouraged many. Grandma Anna. So she approaches them and proclaims and speaks to everyone. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel and Jerusalem. She tells everybody about the Messiah that was being born. Now at this point, it has to be fairly clear to Joseph as there are repeating messages. You have an angel that presents himself to Joseph, says, take Mary as your wife, this baby is the Messiah. You have the shepherds that show up and proclaiming him as the savior of Israel. You have the priest that's identifying to him that this is the sovereign one we've been waiting for. And you have the prophetess Anna who's saying that this is going to be the Messiah that Israel is looking for. Now what does he do next? What about the safety of him, his, his wife and his child? This young baby, the whole town is speaking about the Messiah and the Savior to be born, knowing that Herod has people in town that is looking for such things to stop immediately. How would you decide to do next if it was your family? How do you decide on, on what happens with your family as far as those very difficult decisions, whether it be high school and you're deciding what, you know, to go to college or university, what programs to take? How do you decide what to do, what trajectory to take? That's a lot of pressure. New jobs, living environment, houses. How do you decide what is a good decision to make for your family? Joseph was under a lot of pressure. I believe, make a decision. Make a decision. Because God's plan for you is bigger than your plan for you. Now, that doesn't mean monies, necessarily. That means impact on people around you. That means the impact of your life and, and, and how it sings and gives thanks to God. Make a decision, and God will make the circumstances a guide for you. If you're seeking God's will, he will speak to you in a way that you will hear if you're listening. When Heather and I were dating, she did something that irritates me to this, to this time. She had been hurt in the past by guys, and she wanted to make sure the decision she was making was a good one, and it was about what God had wanted. So she put out what they call a fleece. A fleece is, Lord, I want to make the right decision here. But I want you to tell me that it's the right decision to make. So she had prayed, and she had said, Lord, the guy I'm supposed to marry, he has to say this particular phrase. Now, we had already been dating. She was moving forward in trust, trusting that, you know, I, I was a godly man and wanted to do right. But she still had this fleece out there. When she told me this, I was so upset. I'm like, really? And I tried for the next number of weeks to say every single phrase I could possibly think of in sentences just to try and get the right one to prove this was it. And then one day we were, we were kind of wrestling around and all of a sudden, you know, I said something and then she stopped and she turned away and she walked away from me. I'm like, 
what, what happened? And she said, you said it. She put a fleece out, but she also made a trusting decision that I'm going to move forward in this, knowing that God's behind us. And he confirmed. <laughs> what was the phrase? <laughs> chitty, chitty, bang, bang. <laughs> I had never seen the movie. I'd never seen the show. We were wrestling, and, 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 and I think I said... I don't know what I said. It was ooh ee ooh ah ah. And she says, What's that from? And I don't know, chitty chitty bang bang. And that, and that was it. And tears came. And <laughs> God is faithful. Now, Joseph, this, this was God speaking to Heather the way she needed to be heard, which is how God talks to us and how we listen, how we hear. It will not be the same for everybody. This is how God confirmed in Heather that this was the decision that was going to be good. Now, Joseph obviously heard God through dreams, right? In a dream, an angel appeared to him and told, take Mary as his wife. In a dream, he appeared to him and said, leave to Egypt, which he most gladly did considering the temperature and the political thing of the time. In a dream, they told him to go back to Israel. In a dream, they said, go to Nazareth. This is how he heard God, clearly. What happened is through these trips... From, 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 from Nazareth to, to, to pick up Mary to Bethlehem, back to Nazareth to Egypt and back again. And all these trips, he knew that God would provide and that he would be his guide. And he would have a plan that comes through. Now, Joseph still did the work. They'd still traveled. They still walked. He still worked as a carpenter. He worked hard. But God led him through. My faith story, my trust, I'll, I'll, I'll make this one a little bit quicker than I usually do. When I first became a manager at a hospital, I was in charge of the entire hospital. I was the only manager present on nights, which means anything that happened came through me. I could not have been more nervous. I could not have been more scared if there was a fire, if there was an abduction, if there was anything that happened came through me, and I was responsible for organizing what had happened. I had no idea what I was doing. So... It took me 18 months, every day, every single day, I'd go to work and I'd, I'd listen and I'd, I'd worship hard on the way to work. God of Abraham, be my guide. I can't do this. And I'd spend 20 minutes in the parking lot praying in my car until my stomach felt okay because of the pressure that was on me, knowing I don't know what to do. These people made me in charge. They're foolish. <laughs> it took about 18 months. And I'll tell you, my best shift happened when I did not pray and the reason I did not pray is because I showed up at work and I had a sense God's with me I know God's with me he said he would walk with me he's walking with me and he will show me what I need to do when it needs to be done I moved from a position of faith to trust I trusted that God would walk with me and he has ever since so some of you, I know, some of you have experiences. Some of you have the understanding of the pressures and dangers that Joseph faced. Leaving a country where you and your family were in danger, the uncertainty of the journey here, the doubts, am I making the right decision? Did we make the right decision? You know how hard it is to trust that there are better days ahead. What is a good plan? God 
has brought you here. You are a part of his plan, whether you know it or not. Joseph had no idea he was actually fulfilling God's prophecy. Isaiah talks about a virgin that would give birth. Micah talks about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Hosea talks about, out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew talks about the prophecy that he would be called a Nazarene. Because Joseph listed, because he trusted, prophecies were fulfilled. So these two things I see clear in Joseph's character. Practicing mercy out of love. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Trusting that God has a plan. And in doing our best, we can play a part of that bigger plan than what we know. Father, I want to thank you that we can trust in you. That we can trust no matter what we're facing, that you will take us through. I thank you that you have proven that over and over and over again. Lord, I thank you that you have shown mercy to me, to this community, and everybody here. And I pray that we would be able to go forward and show that mercy to others and thus glorify your name. Amen.